we use signs every day of our lives to communicate and to navigate this world. When we drive a car, we use signs to know when to turn or when to stop. They're tools to communicate to us where danger might lie ahead or when the next exit will be for us to get off the interstate. When we miss the signs, of course, we run the danger of getting off track or losing our way. Signs not only communicate truth and give directions, they're also used by advertisers to communicate messages about their businesses. I mean, after all, how would we know where McDonald's is if it wasn't for the Golden Arches? How often on a road trip do you pay particular attention to those blue signs that tell you where the gas stations or fast food joints are at? Signs are important because they communicate the information we need in a compact and very clear way. When you're driving 70 miles an hour down the interstate, you don't have time to read a billboard filled with words. You need the message as quickly as possible. Because after all, you're probably not driving 70 miles an hour anyways. Well, the Apostle John also uses signs. Not giant billboards or uh, road signs, but messages that communicate the truth about who Jesus is. John uses these signs to communicate important truth about the one true and living God, Jesus Christ. Why Jesus has come and who he is. In fact, he organizes the first half of this book, the book of John, around these signs. He wants to reveal to us who Jesus is and why Jesus came. D.A. Carson commenting on this, says this about these signs. This is important. So listen, Jesus's miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs significantly display the power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived With the eyes of faith. Friends, it is these signs and through these signs that we will turn our attention over the next few weeks. As Jesus uses them to reveal his identity as the one true and living God. Now last week we began our study in the the gospel of John. And we looked at that great prologue in verses 1 through 18. Where we saw that Jesus is the eternal word. The eternal logos. The one who came He is the revelation of the Father, that he has come to reveal the Father and to die for the sins of the world. If you have your Bibles open this morning, I want to just note sort of the structure of the next few weeks and very familiar passages, I'm sure, to some. So, so for example, uh, John 3.16 coming up in the next chapter. Of course, Jesus with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Well, if you've ever really been a close student of John's gospel, you'll notice that John chapter 2 and John chapter 4 begin and end with Jesus doing a miracle in a town called Cana. Now, John does this in a partic- for a particular reason. He wants to book in this, this sections, chapters 2 through 4, 
to, to really bring forward one theme, one overarching message, and that is Jesus Christ has come to inaugurate a new beginning in God's redemptive plan. In each of these subsequent chapters, Jesus will be putting forward through word and action that God is about to do something new, and that new work is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning when we see Jesus turning water into wine, or when we see Jesus cleansing the temple, or when we see Jesus next week with Nicodemus saying that the new birth has come, the the promised Holy Spirit that was promised through the prophets has come, or when Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman at the well and says that true worshipers worship in spirit and truth, he's signaling that there is a new way to God and it isn't a temple in Jerusalem. It's not through sacrifice, but through me, through Jesus Christ. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about this new kingdom, this new era, this new beginning in God's redemptive plan, a plan that as we study through Genesis was laid from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, as God promised to redeem the world through his son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 2. If you've not already, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Again, it's found on page 887 in the Pew Bibles. I encourage you to have your Bible open uh, throughout the sermon as I will make call attention to a number of verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up in Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And he made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these away! Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, 
It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. Well, if we could summarize chapter two in just one short sentence, it would be this. Jesus is the Christ who ushers in the new era in God's redemptive plan. Both of these events seek to put forward the same theme that we'll see in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Namely, that Jesus, by coming, has inaugurated, has ushered in, has begun a new era in God's redemptive plan. Similarly, in Mark's gospel, when Mark begins his gospel, he quotes Jesus as saying, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to really confirm to us Jesus' identity as the Messiah. Now to be clear, the word Christ and Messiah are the same word. They're referring to the same office. Christ is the Greek word, Messiah the Hebrew word, referring to this anointed one that the prophets had promised would come and usher in this new kingdom. But not only is Jesus' identity confirmed, we see also in this text that, that John seeks to confront misconceptions about Jesus, or particularly the Messiah. You see, when Jesus came, he was very careful not to feed into misunderstandings about the Messiah. Some had taken the Old Testament and misinterpreted it to mean that when the Christ came, he would come as a victorious king and overthrow the Roman Empire. He would be this wonderful Davidic king, and and he would, but not in his first coming. And so Jesus, through cleansing the temple, presents himself as a very uncomfortable Messiah, one that, that these Jews struggled to believe in. If you remember last week, I gave you three questions that will help you as you're reading through John's gospel. I hope that you write them down or make a mental note of them as you're reading ahead. They are, again, these three questions, all coming from John chapter 20, that that purpose statement that John gave. We looked at it last week. In John chapter 20, John says that he wrote for a particular reason. And so that first question is, is how does this chapter, this passage, reveal Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? How how does this particular story reveal to me this about Jesus? And, And secondly, we saw that every single passage in John's gospel evokes a response from the reader. We thought about how when we read the Bible, when we study Scripture, that it demands you to respond. There there is either one or the other response. Either you believe or you don't believe. And we see that here this morning. And and that that final question was, how does Jesus transform my life? How does this passage lead to my transformation? How does it change 
my life. And we saw the example there of Andrew and Peter and, and Nicodemus, or, uh, Nathaniel and Philip last week, and of course others in the future. This morning I want us to think, and as you saw those two stories, first of Jesus turning water into wine and the cleansing of the temple, you saw two responses, didn't you? In the turning of the water to wine, we, we heard there at the end that the disciples believed in him. They trusted in him. And then at the end of the cleansing of the temple, when Jesus declared that, that he was the new temple, the Jews disbelieved or doubted he was the Messiah. And so there's really two responses this morning I want us to think about. Do you believe or do you doubt? In chapters one, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we are told that Jesus takes ordinary water and transforms it into extraordinary wine. Look with me there in verses 1 through 5. There John lays forth the problem. There's no wine. John presents the contextual problem for which Jesus himself will be the only solution. We are told that it's now the third day, that is the third day in the week, of Jesus' first week of ministry. It began on the shores of the Jordan River where John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next day was the day where Jesus met Nathaniel and Philip. It's now the third day, the, the day after he meets the, these men who've now become his disciples. And we're told that, that he's at a wedding feast. Him and his mother, though John doesn't name Mary by name, of course, he's referencing Mary here. We're told that they attended a wedding. Now, a wedding in this particular culture wasn't a one-day event. It wasn't an afternoon event. It wasn't, you know, taking place on a Saturday afternoon. But it was rather a week-long festival. And Jesus and his mother and his disciples go to this week-long festival. At some point along the way, we are told that they run out of wine. Now, for you and I, this may seem like no big deal. We can just run down to the store and buy more. But for them, this was a, a terrible situation. In this particular culture, to run out of wine at a, at a time of celebration and festivity was an embarrassment. In fact, the responsibility to have sufficient amount of wine laid upon the bridegroom. And to run out of wine was not only an embarrassment, it could have led to costly fines and even litigation. In a shame culture uh, like this culture here in the first century, this would have been horrible. It, it, it would be akin to uh, things that happen on our wedding days that, that might mark them off and, and might spell disaster. Therefore, this problem of not having wine was a serious one, and one that could not easily be fixed. And this led Jesus' mother to ask him to do the impossible. John leaves much of the details out because he doesn't really want us to get distracted with some of the details. Now, now I know one detail that I know probably caught your English ears was the way Jesus referred to his mother. All right? Uh, this is where, friends... This was not written in English, all right? Uh, this is where you know, lost in translation here, all right? Uh, when, if we were to respond to our mother and call her woman, uh, it would not probably end well. But in this culture, 
Jesus here uses a term of respect and honor. He is not deriding his mother. He's not uh, talking down to his mother, but, but rather honoring her. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, he says. In other words, that John is going to use this phrase, my hour has not yet come, to, to remind the readers that Jesus is about one thing and one thing only. And that is to do the Father's will, not his will and not the will of man. Jesus will make this abundantly clear in John chapter 3 when he teaches us about the Spirit's activities and how the Spirit works. Nonetheless, here, I don't want us to get derailed, if you will, on these particular details and get distracted by the peripheral, but rather do what John wanted us to do, which is use our mental energy to reflect on what Jesus does in this particular story. Friend, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, it doesn't take a, a PhD to understand what John says. John says that Jesus took ordinary wine and transformed it without touch, without word, into extraordinary wine. You see, if we get in the weeds, we might miss the wonder of it all. Jesus took water and made wine. This is miraculous. This is wonderful. This is inspiring. This is all worshiping of the one true and living God. And so John presents to us that Jesus is the solution to the problem of no wine. We are told that, that upon his mother's request in verses 6 through 10, that Jesus gives instructions to the servants to fill six jars of water to the top. Now, again, much have too much time on their hands as they're reading their Bibles, perhaps, and make too much of this. As they look and say, oh, they're, they're, they're for the Jewish rites of purification. I've got to unlock this. What does this mean? I don't think that's John's point at all for us to get distracted there. The point that John is making here isn't what these jars are for, but how much these jars fit. In other words, he wants to, he's focused on the fact that these jars are big and they hold a lot of water. 20 to 30 gallons, he says. Friends, don't be lost at looking at the jars. He, he wants us to know what's in the jars more than what the outside of the jars look like. This is why he makes the point there in verse 6 that 20 or 30 gallons, in other words, there's a lot of water in these stinking things, he says. And then notice what he says there at the end of verse 7, and they filled them up to the brim. Brothers and sisters, don't miss, this is an eyewitness account. An eyewitness account from 30 years earlier. If John is writing this, we'll say in 70 AD, then it's 40 years since this event took place in John's life. And he remembers 30 gallons of water and those things were like to the top. Do you not think that John is still in awe of what he witnessed that day? So we're told that they are filled to the brim and without a touch, Without a word, without a prayer, without anything, Jesus tells, us, tells the servants, dip out and take to the, the master of the, of the feast. And they go, and the water has become wine. Surely something greater than Moses is here. You see, Moses had to touch the, red, the Nile to turn it red. 
Elijah had to touch and speak words. No one in all of the Old Testament has done a miracle just by his own will. Surely something greater has come. Jesus tells his servant, these servants to take them to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast was the expert. He, he, was the, he was the party planner. He's the modern-day wedding planner, party planner. He's the guy who knew how to throw a good wedding feast. And by calling attention to him, he wants the readers to know that who is tasting this wine, who, who, who took a drink and then went and talked to the bridegroom, was someone who knew what good wine tasted like. Because if you notice here, John calls attention to the wine. Listen to the expert and what he says there in verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this just makes logical sense. When one begins to consume wine at the beginning, their palate is fresh. But as you can consume more and more wine over a course of a week, your palate isn't as precise as it once was. And therefore, it doesn't detect the good versus the bad. And so, of course, to save money, the bridegroom would pass off the, the cheaper wine at the end. But notice what the master of the feast says. You have kept the good wine until now. Did you hear the word? Did you hear it? Let me say it this way to you. Jesus created something good. How do you hear it? Who else created something good? Well, if you were paying attention through our study through Genesis, uh, we know that God created that which is good and right and glorious. When Jesus created water out of wine, he created what is good. Not what is bad. Friends, this is the point that John is driving. That something new has come. What was once bad, no wine, is now good, good wine. Well, thankfully, in John's gospel, John does not spare to interpret the event. Look with me at verse 11. There John will interpret what we just saw. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee... And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What is the point? Well, thankfully, John tells us, doesn't he? The point is this, that Jesus did this to reveal his glory, to reveal his identity. This miracle reveals that Jesus is the sovereign creator and ruler of the material universe. And that he is the merciful God who provides abundantly for his people's needs. Who else? Without a word, without a touch, without a trick, without, without anything could, could take water from a well and instantaneously with their own will make it into wine. Not just any wine, good wine. By Jesus turning water into wine, he is inaugurating a new order in the universe. Jesus, by turning water into wine, is declaring something that these disciples realize. You see, if you're a student of your Bible, and particularly of your Old Testament, you will know that God had promised 
through the prophets that when the Messiah comes, that when the Christ comes, there would be a sign that would accompany it and they would know it would be undoubtable that when he arrived, he must be the Messiah because this sign would happen. What was it? The flowing of wine. An excellent example of this is the prophet Amos. Listen to what he says concerning the days of the Messiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed and the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Well, the prophet Jeremiah, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the close coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young and the flock and the herd. In other words, Jeremiah foresees a future day when wine will flow in abundance once again in Israel. You see, wine was a symbol of God's blessing to the nation of Israel. When there was no wine... It was a measure of God's curse upon the nation. Wine wasn't something easy to make. It wasn't something that you could easily cook up. It took time. It took fertile soil. It took just the right rains. It, it of course, took a, a bountiful harvest. I mean, you can't make wine with just one bunch of grapes. You needed fields upon fields and even here in our story, Jesus creating 30 gallons of wine. Again, a measure of God's abundant mercy. To have a land filled with wine in abundance is a land prosperous in so many ways. And in doing this act, Jesus again is declaring himself to be the creator king, the messianic king who has come to usher in God's new kingdom. To take the old and make the new. As Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore if anyone is in, new, in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold the new has come. Jesus is inaugurating something new. Something greater. But there's another point that John wants us to, to hone in here. On verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. Remember theology leads to faith. It demands a response. This revelation demands some kind of response from its viewer. Jesus' disciples couldn't passively see this and not respond. They had to respond. And, and the, res the response which is right by them is faith and trust. And sadly, as we'll see in just a moment, the wrong response is to sort of push against it and doubt, even though one's eyes see it clearly. Friend, I don't think the point could be made any clearer. Who other than God could do this miracle? Who other than God could do this? And if no other person than God could do this, then Jesus must be God. Well, that's the other point that John is making, isn't it? Not only that he is the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God. That Jesus is is the Word made flesh. Friends, why does this story bring comfort 
to us as Christians. I'm sure if you, you've been a Christian for a number of years, you've, you've heard this story. Perhaps you grew up hearing it in Sunday school. Or, or perhaps it's brand new to you this morning. Never heard this story before. Why does this bring comfort? How, do, how does it bring about belief in the life of the Christian? Listen again what Jesus does. He does it without touch, without word, but by will. This means, and as you'll see later at the end of chapter 4, that Jesus works even when he's not in proximity. Jesus will heal the servant by, by being far from him. And friends, it's a comfort to know that, that today, though Jesus is not physically present here, he is still at work to work and to will for his good pleasure. This is a point we're going to see in the weeks ahead. And, and finally, I don't want you to be amiss by the abundance of Jesus' blessing. Jesus doesn't turn water into a bottle of wine. But 30 gallons. There's nothing spiritual about the number. But there's something miraculous and extraordinary about 30 gallons. When Jesus blesses his people, he blesses in abundance. Brothers and sisters, know today that you have been blessed abundantly. That when God blesses, he blesses abundantly. By turning water into wine, Jesus reveals that he is the long-awaited Christ. That he is the sovereign creator king who has come to rescue his people from their sins and to usher in God's new kingdom. The only response that we have this morning, the response that we must have this morning, is to trust that Jesus is the Christ, your only hope, and your only king. Perhaps you doubt that Jesus is who he reveals himself in this passage. Well, this doubt is revealed to us in this next section in chapters 2, verses 13 through 25, to which we'll turn our attention now. John reports that after this event that Jesus and his family and his disciples go down to Capernaum, uh, just uh, about 17 miles or so from, from Cana, not far from Jerusalem. They spend some time there and then ultimately they make their way up to the Passover. In John's gospel, he records three Passovers that Jesus attends, uh, which is why we believe Jesus had three years of ministry uh, here on earth before culminating that work in his death and resurrection and ascension. For many of us, as we are confronted with this particular passage, it's quite familiar to some and very foreign to others. We are told that after the death of, of John the Baptist, that Capernaum, this place that they've went down to visit there in verse 12, will become the headquarters of Jesus' ministry where he will send his disciples out all over the world. Upon arriving at the temple complex there in verse 13 and then in verse 14, Jesus is overcome by what he sees, and that is blasphemy of his father's house. Now, the other synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the temple cleansing much later in Jesus' ministry, right before the Passion Week. And here John either moves that story up or records to us a second cleansing, a cleansing at the beginning of his ministry and the cleansing at the end of his ministry. I'm inclined to believe that there were two cleansing, two different focuses, two different intentions. One, to expose corruption, which was the later cleansing. 
and one here to make a theological point for which John puts forward that Jesus is the new temple. That Jesus is the new way to meet with God. What was once the old way through the tabernacle and ultimately the temple has been replaced through the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to put forward this morning. Jesus arrives there and he sees a a dreadful scene. We are told that Jesus drives out the merchants and the money changers from the court of the Gentiles. What was supposed to be a place of worship had been turned into a place of business. This area of the temple court area wasn't the temple proper uh, where the sacrifices took place. Only Jews were permitted there. This area of the temple was an area where anyone could come and was designed particularly by God to be a place where non-Jews, Gentiles by name, could come and pray and meet God. It was an area where these God-fearers could come and worship the one true and living God. But the religious leaders of the day had transformed it into a place of commerce. Here Jesus doesn't call out the practice of money changing and selling, as he will do in the synoptic gospels, but rather the location where they are conducting business. That is, what Jesus is mad about, what he's frustrated about in this particular scene is where they're conducting their businesses, not how they're conducting their businesses. You see, pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem, Jews who would travel during the Passover, some of which would travel hundreds of miles to go and worship God. Of course, they would come to pay the temple tax and then sacrifice an animal there in worship. Now, because they were traveling such a long journey, it would be quite difficult to bring their sacrifice along with them. It's not so easy to, you know, pack a a sheep in your overnight bag. And so, when they arrived in the town, they, they made a couple stops. The first stop was to the money changers. You see, they had their, perhaps, Roman coinage, and they had to exchange it for the temple coin. Then they could take that temple coin and pay their tax, their temple tax. And also, they needed that coin to go and purchase their sacrifice, whether it be a cow, a sheep, whatever it may be. So there was this currency exchange and purchase. And what Jesus comes upon, what he stumbles upon, is a noisy scene that is quite distracting. Now, now imagine you're, you're in this area, and all you hear is, is coins clanking, feet shuffling in the dust, the, the bleeding of sheep, the, the mooing of cows. It's a quite distracting scene. And, and all the while, you have these God-fears, these Gentiles coming in. And so what do we have We have the Jews doing exactly the opposite of what the temple was meant to do. The temple was meant to be a place where Jew and Gentile alike could come and worship the one true and living God. God had never, ever, from the very beginning, when he called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, said that I'm only going to save the Jews. But rather, he said that you Jews are my special people and through you, you will be a light to the nation. But they had become inward and they cared more about themselves than as we will see Jesus, who has come to be a light to the nation. Well, in response to this scene, Jesus, we are told, makes a whip. Now, to be clear, 
Lest you be confused, Jesus doesn't make this whip to whip people. All right? Look at verse 15 again. Read it again. He made a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. In other words, what's the whip for? Not for the people, silly, but for the sheep and oxen. I mean, after all, how do you get livestock to get going other than whipping them? Right? Jesus here is driving these people out. He's moving them along, and he cleans the temple. He cleanses the temple. He, he clears it out. In doing so, he, he displays a prophetic zeal for God's house. And foreshadows the judgment of the religious leaders who allowed worship to deteriorate into commerce, rendering prayer obsolete, obsolete in the temple court. Naturally, his disciples, in reflecting this, see it as a fulfillment of, John, of uh, Psalm 69. We'll think about that in a moment more in just a moment. Well, in response to Jesus acting like a lunatic in the eyes of the Jews, they naturally respond with frustration. Jesus' erratic behavior is met with a demand. Hey, we need you to prove your authority to do such things. So we're told there in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they say, hey, we need you to verify that you have the authority to do what you just did. Jesus says, sure, I'll give you a sign. The one whom the temple pointed naturally had the right and authority to regulate its practices. This is just the point Jesus is going to make. The point Jesus makes, I'll say it again, is this. Jesus is going to say, hey, this temple that we're, we're hanging out in today, this temple was constructed to point to me. Therefore, I have the authority to regulate its practices. I'm the one who designed this place, and I'm the one that will replace this temple. And so Jesus gives them the sign that they ask. Look there in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now we notice a number of things about what Jesus says here. Notice he doesn't say, I will destroy this temple. Jesus says, destroy this temple. So just imagine Jesus here saying, destroy this temple. That's how John and, his, and the disciples understood Jesus. Jesus referring there, look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus here is saying, listen, I am the temple. You are going to destroy it. And, and this is what's so great. I will raise it up in three days. Jesus here foreshadowing not only his death, but his resurrection as the sign to his authority. Jesus is making an emphatically clear statement that he is going to replace the Jerusalem temple. That the temple was only a type, a foreshadow of something greater to come. Look with me at John chapter 1 verse 14. This was the point John made there. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, that word, dwelt among us, is the word tabernacle, which replaced the temple... In other words, Jesus is the person, the place that you meet with God. 
As Jesus would tell his disciples later in years to come when they were traversing through the temple and his disciples were overcome by the wonder of the temple and the beauty of the construction, Jesus says, hey, fools, something greater than the temple is here. You see, this second temple, the first temple had been destroyed and they constructed a new temple. But something was missing from this new temple. The the Old Testament never records that the Shekinah glory of God ever ascended into this second temple. And it wasn't until Jesus of Nazareth walked through its courts that God's glory was revealed through this temple. This is the point that John is putting forward. That the only place to look at the one true and living God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to meet God? Do you want to dwell with God? Then meet Jesus. He is the only place. He is the only way. Well, naturally, the Jews were quite unsatisfied with Jesus and his response. What they wanted was wonders in the skies. We want a sign. Give us something. Give us something we can see. Give us something we want that we can touch. Give us something that we can feel. Give us something that we can stand in awe of. But see, they didn't want a a radical savior. One that would clean up their act. No, they wanted a savior, a Messiah, that would meet their expectations. A God who would fit in the palm of their hands. A God, ultimately, that could be understood with their minds. But friends, this wasn't the Messiah that God had sent. He had sent his son, a very different Messiah than all human expectation could meet. And so the response was disbelief and doubt. While the Jews rejected the sign from heaven, Jesus' disciples further, we are told, believed in him. Notice what they said. Notice what John writes there in verse 22. Again, John was there. He was an eyewitness of this whole event. And therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples, including John, remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Three years had passed since this event. But it had seared something in their, in their minds, something that it would take the resurrection of Jesus Christ when, when the light bulbs would go off and Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Phillips. We remember what he said. Oh, how the seeds often take time to sprout, don't they? Brothers and sisters, remember That seeds take time to sprout. Parents, remember that seeds take time to sprout. Do not grow weary. Do not grow discouraged. But remember that seeds sprout in God's perfect timing, in his perfect way. Three years went by before this seed sprouted in the souls of Jesus' disciples. As Charles Bridges helpfully says in his book, Christian Ministry, the seed may lie under the earth and then you also and then spring up. Sometimes our earthly labors will continue to lie dormant until we die and then bear fruit. Parent, brother, sister, do not grow discouraged. Trust that God works in his perfect time. 
Well, John concludes here in verses 20 and 23 through 25 by summarizing the point that we've been thinking about. Namely, that some will believe inwardly and some only outwardly. But ultimately, Jesus knows those who are genuinely his. A theme that you will find in the Gospel of John is that Jesus knows his own and his own know him. That there is a kind of outward belief that is not genuine, that doesn't last, that doesn't endure. We're told here in chapter 2, verse 25, that Jesus doesn't trust all who profess in him. But Jesus, and on his part, John writes, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There is a danger when we believe in Jesus that that belief may not be genuine. We may outwardly profess, I believe in Jesus, I believe he's the Christ, but inwardly, We doubt. We're no different than these Jewish leaders who disbelieve Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus tells us that many will start out on the journey of following him, but few will make it. As he tells his disciples in other places, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must continually, I mean daily, reflect in belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, do not leave it to a moment in the past. An aisle walked, a prayer prayed, a moment in time like A moment in time, like confirmation, or holy communion, or the rite of baptism. All man-made devices that do not bring about true assurance. Belief must be something that is done daily, moment by moment, trusted in Jesus, step by step. Do you believe on him today? Is the most important question you begin every day with. Will I believe on Jesus today? Will I trust him today? Do I believe he is the Messiah? The one without a word can speak, without without a hand touch can do. Do you believe he is the Messiah? The God who moves heaven and earth. Or are you like these Jewish leaders? Is Jesus just the Messiah of your own making. Is he a God who can fit in your hand and in your mind? A friend, if so, he's not the God of the Bible. And he's not the King of Kings. Is he an uncomfortable Savior who overturns tables and drives out goats from the house of worship? The Lord Jesus is. And he's not afraid to call a goat a goat and a sheep a sheep. And neither should you. Do you doubt that Jesus is the Christ? Are you looking for a Messiah that fits your expectations? Or do you believe believe that Jesus is the one true and living God who has come to reveal the Father 
and to save you from your sins. Friends, this is what we've thought about this morning and whom we believe in. And may he confront our misconceptions and confirm that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that you are glorified through your Son, Jesus Christ, in our life as we repent of our sins and trust in him alone for salvation. We do depend on him. He is our only Savior. He is the Messiah who came and who reigns victorious at the right hand of the Father Almighty and will come from the Father to judge the living and the dead. It is you that we confess this morning our need of and our glory in. In his name we pray. Amen.